Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. On this week's episode, we've got a wealth of cultural goodies lined up for your listening pleasure. We'll meet the director of a new documentary called Keyboard Fantasies that tells the story of one musician belatedly finding his audience. We'll zip over to a new exhibition in Naples to talk about book collecting and the importance of libraries. And we'll meet the Venezuelan DJ who's very kindly put a big old dose of Ibethan summer together in a new compilation album. And it's just a shot of vitamin D that we need as the cold creeps in this winter. That is all coming up on Monocle on Culture. Do stay tuned. Music documentaries often chart an artist's glorious rise to fame, and as the heydays pass, a sometimes less than glamorous decline. However, a new documentary called Keyboard Fantasies joyfully bucks that trend. It tells the story of the musician Beverly Glenn Copeland. Copeland's ingenious 1986 album, Keyboard Fantasies, spent almost 30 years in obscurity until influential Japanese record collector Ryoto Mazuko of Shiyeye Records sent a chance email to inquire about buying the remaining stock. Within months, Copeland had signed a record deal to re-release Keyboard Fantasies and everything else he'd ever written. And less than five years later, at the age of 74, this black transgender musician was planning his first ever world tour. Monocle's Paige Reynolds meets the director of Keyboard Fantasies, Posey Dixon, to find out more about the film. Deep river My home is over Jordan I want to cross over into campground. The musician is Glenn Copeland, and Glenn Copeland makes music under the name Beverly Glenn Copeland. Um, and he is an incredible Canadian musician who has been making music. He's about 76 now, I think. And he's been making music since the day he was born and released music, uh, many albums over the years that never really made it beyond an incredibly small audience. And then in 2015, a cassette tape that he had written in the 80s called Keyboard Fantasies, he'd sold 30 copies of it. It wound up in Japan as a collector's item and that record got reissued and slowly built this kind of cult fan base around the world. Um, so now Glenn Copeland has emerged at the age of kind of 74, 75 as a real underground music hero. And I guess I'm interested in how you first came across the story personally and sort of the process of of, of making this film and of getting Glenn in, involved in, in the telling of his story in this way. Yeah, I mean, I think the the whole film has been led by music and that was exactly my journey as well. I heard keyboard fantasies back in kind of 2017 I think and the second I heard it I was in the studio and my friend played it to me and I was like whoa what is this voice like who is this who is this person like it was so electric and I went digging around trying to find more music and couldn't find much online 
and found my way to Glenn. So he transitioned in the 90s and changed his name. And I just reached out to him on Facebook. And then we struck up a friendship. And then we spoke on Skype like once a month for about a year. And over that time, he started to get more and more messages from young people talking about keyboard fantasies. And he met a young band of artists that wanted to play with him. So it was kind of over that year period that we were talking that he decided that he was going to start playing that record and get it out to the people that wanted it. And you thought, there's a there's a film in this? My first intention was just to go and record him playing the music with a band because he'd never played it live before. He wrote it on his own with two, you know, two synth machines, put it on a cassette tape. That was it. So my first intention was like, Glenn, I want to record you playing these because I want people to be able to see, you know, like when you hear that music, you're like, what's the person behind it? And I was like, how cool to have it live. So I initially was just like wanting to do performance films and maybe an interview with it. But then after I finally got enough money together to go out and film some music videos essentially I did an interview with Glenn and I spent a week with him as well just like driving all around Canada and talking for hours and hours and hours when I got back to London I sat on the footage for like a month not knowing what to do with it and then I spoke with my producer Liv who's an absolute hero and she was like let's do it Posey come on let's try and make a bigger thing and the whole way along it was this like kind of like three-part journey completely led by the music and I wanted it to feel like a kind of audio visual tapestry of his story so putting all of his music into the context of where it had come from and then I wanted it just to be like bang we're now HD on tour just like with the band they were staying in my flat in London because no one knew who they were at the time they didn't know if people were going to come to these shows or not they only had three shows booked it was really like flying by the seat of their pants and Glenn was self-funding bits of it and it was you know it was really really DIY I was like okay we're gonna do it and in my head I was like I hope there's a big show I hope there's a show that feels magnificent and then that final show at the guess who yeah in my head I was like I really hope there's a big show here but I hadn't thought about it that deeply I guess I was like we'll figure out what happens like we're making a documentary what goes goes yeah and then that show like we turned up and no one expected it And Glenn is such a cool cat and the whole way along acts like everything's just like da-da-da-da-da. But when he walked out onto that stage, Ella Guess Who, he was like, whoa, what? My home is over Jordan. There was kind of a point that was made a few times and I guess, well, we haven't really alluded to it here, but he always kind of felt like he was a bit out of sync and that what he was doing was not just kind of um, ahead of his time, but kind of just beyond, I guess, like something that has to be with, sit within a certain time frame. Um, could you tell us a bit about, about that quality of his and, and how you kind of tried to maybe illustrate it through the film? Yeah, I mean, I think that Glenn from birth has been someone who's been very much kind of existing in a way that I think is very truthful to them, you know? And I think one thing that really struck me when I was writing the first part of the film, kind of really trying to unpack as much as I could of his upbringing and his kind of childhood and teenage years, he went to McGill University to study classical singing at 17 in the early 60s and started living as an out lesbian 
which was illegal then in Canada. And I think that I was, when I started making the film, in my mind, I was like, oh, the 60s were a time of, like, free love and liberal thinking and stuff. But it wasn't like that. And I am so grateful that I had all this time to do... I did, like, a lot of research and a lot of speaking to LGBTQ plus archives in Canada and in the States and stuff. And everyone I spoke to was, like, the fact that he was living as an out black lesbian in the early 60s at university is wild, you know? And I think the whole way along, he's been 10, 20, 30 years ahead of everybody else. And you can hear that in his music. He he says that his music is is sent to him by a kind of, like, universal broadcasting system. He compares himself to a radio. And he's just bringing in what comes and giving it to us all, you know? And I think that as well is why his music often feels timeless, because it bounces around different genres. They don't fit into a particular time zone. I was a part of something that I didn't know I was a part of, because I'm transgendered, but transgendered is something I only came to understand um, in the last 20 years. Today's young people, they don't think anything of it. And I just look at that and go, oh, there's kind of a, a moment where Glenn, I think, is talking to like a group at a, is it a university, and uh, someone there sort of thanks him for being like a queer elder, for being someone to kind of look up to. And I guess that's something that I don't know. Were you aware of, of telling that story as well of someone who's kind of an elder who has this kind of knowledge to pass on for a younger generation that I guess seems to be more comfortable with these ideas of identity and 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 everything, but actually maybe they do still need this kind of guiding force yeah and it's so funny the first when I fir- when I first started talking to Glenn the first kind of treatment I wrote was actually for a small series and it was called Elders and that was that was literally like the first thing that I went with was like the way I see it my generation we are working off the back of all the work that Glenn's generation did and we got to pick up where they left off you know and like continue our work and our practice from there and everything we do is recorded, like everything is archived and recorded and, and videos and films and photos. But his generation, not so much, you know. And I was like, it's such a beautiful thing to bring together artists from the two generations, the three generations, and see what they have to say to each other, you know, and like li- like listen and share and make together. I guess I was initially looking at it from like a an artist practice way. But the other thing about this film is it has so many different messages and important points for different communities you know it means a completely different thing to a trans person it means a completely different thing to an african-american it's like there's so many different strings of glenn's story that connect with people 40 young people tell me that they only hear how selfish they are they never hear how wonderful they are and so it's like i'm sitting there and all of a sudden it's like i go oh (laughs) is this the purpose of my life. Literally, that's what hit me. I thought, oh, is that why nothing's happened till now? I'm supposed to support these young people. I'm supposed to tell them how beautiful they are. That was Posey Dixon, director of the documentary Keyboard Fantasies, which is out in cinemas right now. Time for a slice of sunshine now as we approach the depths of winter in the Northern Hemisphere. Ritmo Fantasia is a new compilation album by Venezuelan DJ Trujillo, a.k.a. Andres Astorga, which takes us to the hedonistic Ibethan summers from the 1980s. 
While many of the most well-known tracks from the period are from international artists, Andres has compiled a list of purely Spanish gems. It's a different take on the Balearic sound that really hones in on the native sound of the islands. Here he tells us about the album and some of his favourite tracks from it. I've been uh, traveling a lot to Spain during the last 10 years. My grandparents were Spanish. It's, it's, my, it's in my roots. I've been like discovering all these tracks around uh, some record shops, flea markets, or just through friends who are, who are diggers in, in Spain. And at some point I had uh, like a nice selections of tracks and through my friend Milos Kaiser uh, from Brazil. He did the compilation On Daddy de Amor on Soundway Records. So he was visiting here in Berlin and we were listening to music and he was like, man, you should do like a, a compilation with all this amazing Spanish music. So he put me in contact with Soundway Records. I made the project, they loved the idea. So we started working on it. I, of course, started to, you know, to do all this research about how was Ibiza back in the 80s, you know, the Ibiza live, the, the, the sound there, the whole Balearic world there during the 80s. So, of course, I found this uh, amazing club called Ku, which was like the most, like, the most important uh, club uh, back in the days, uh, doing the open air parties and stuff. And there was this amazing guy called Yves Uro, which uh, used to do all the uh, illustrations uh, for the posters of, of, of the parties in, in this club. And I love, uh, I felt in love with the, with, with, with the artwork of this guy. For me, it was uh, completely Balearic. So I managed to license the illustrations from this guy for the compilation. And I started to build this like utopic idea or dream about uh, this sound, this music, this compilation was the perfect soundtrack for the parties that were happening in this club during during the 80s. There, there was one one specific party called the Noche Española, and on this party they used to play like Spanish music all night. So for me, this was like the, the starting point to tell this story. The Spanish Balearic side of the music, no? because most of the Balearic compilations or things that uh, have been done are more like international in a way, no? more like uh, American or English tracks. For me, every single track in the compilation is a special. I feel like it's um, very wide range of uh, music styles, all under the Balearic umbrella, you know, because Balearic can be different uh, styles. It's, 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 not a, it's not a genre of music, it's more, it's more like a lifestyle in a way, you know. So it's, it's just music that it's uh, in a way refreshing, you know. Isamari Compañía is a track made uh, on the early 90s by the 
producers from uh, Barcelona, Raul Orellana and Kim Quer, uh, two amazing guys. And especially Raul Orellana was the first guy that started to use uh, Spanish guitars with house beats. This was the guy that, that first uh, did this approach to, to, to try to, to make this combination between the pop, house music with the Spanish uh, flamenco influence. And the Isamar track is, is very, very funny because he's this girl telling the story about that she's trying to reach the guy, to reach the guy uh, she likes, but she calls the house and, and, her, and the mom of the guy asks her like he's not there and stuff. And it's just quite funny. I really like it. I will say Marengo is a really special track for me, the, the opening track, because it's a track that um, it's, it's the, for me the most Balearic, properly Balearic track from the compilation, you know, it's like super dreamy, it's, it, it has reminiscence to Moments in Love from Art of Noise. I guess the producer back in the day, back in the day uh, was of course uh, influenced or using this track as a reference. But at the same time, it's not like trying to copy that track. It's more like getting the influence from that track to do something, you know, like with the Spanish touch. So this track is really special. To me. Ritmo Fantasia, Balearic Spanish synth-pop, Boogie and House, 1982-1992, is out on the 26th of November by Soundway Records. Thanks to Fernando Augusto Pacheco for that interview. Finally... We're ending up in Italy to delve into the world of books, but we're not speaking to an author or pondering on literary classics. We're considering how and why we collect books. A book takes on a completely different meaning when looked at in the context of a personal collection and when you suddenly come into possession of a loved one's library. What on earth can you do with this uniquely emotional collection of objects? This is precisely what designer and famed trend forecaster Liedervai Edelcourt grapples with in a new exhibition in which she and curator Charlotte Grun devised to show and celebrate some of the books in the library of late, much-acclaimed Dutch graphic designer Anton Baker. Monocle's Rome correspondent David Pleasant spoke to the duo at the opening of their show at the Archivio di Stato, the state archives in Naples. It is a, a little part of a bigger library which we put together about the books of uh, the graphic designer Anton Beke. We lost him three years ago, unfortunately. And I met Charlotte in a cocktail party and we discussed books. And I said, I have now all these books and I want to do something with them. And then we, we sort of built this idea to create an um, edited library of his books so that the public could um, sort of consider books and rediscover books through the eye of a gifted creative person. And um, how did you go about doing that practically? 
take me through how, how you got to this yeah. result, this physical show? Well, it was quite interesting. Uh, Liedewey invited me to come to Amsterdam, to the house of Anton, and all his books were like there in the room, and we just went through them. We just took them out. And this is like, oh, this red book, oh, this is erotic. Okay, we put it on a pile. Oh, this book, this is graphic design. We put it on another pile, and then we, like, discussing, like, we have all these different piles of books. How can we connect them or don't connect them? And then we had all these teams. So you had a kind of natural selection process that just occurred organically. It was emotional editing, if you think, because uh, you encounter so many private little words and photographs and even critiques from newspapers and of course a lot of dedication from his graphic designer friends because he had many. So this library is also a gift to graphic design because it's accumulating all the best of 70s, 80s, 90s and further on graphic design. So it's it's a great value. And also it strikes me that it's really treading this kind of like intersection of, of design, art and culture, it seems to be kind of like the book in itself is kind of like a perfect expression of that as a medium to really transgress culture and design. Would, would you say is that something that maybe is a strong element of, of this particular show? Yeah, it really shows you the reach of books and that the book is... Uh, that you can judge a book by its cover, in this case, because the covers are a major part of graphic design and became very important with new technology, such as uh, glitter and laser cut and whatever there was, you know, new things. You see that all these designers jump on these ideas and then they make progress in their work. And I I wanted to kind of look forward maybe to, and after all, you're, you're famed as a trend forecaster how does this kind of tie into you seeing what the future of books and and the the concept of a library it's quite interesting it's such a sort of old-fashioned concept but in a way you're reimagining it I strongly believe in the revival of the library as a cultural place within a city especially medium uh, and medium big cities and smaller cities now people are moving out of the urban centers so there will be more focus I think on the smaller libraries and there's actually already a trend in Japan towards uh, reading in libraries there is a library hotel which you go to the hotel just to read now there is a hot bath where you go to the hot bath to read and it becomes very cool and contemporary to be related to books actually and we believe uh, with Charlotte that the library also will have a a cultural central place maybe to lend out clothes or artifacts or um, I don't know you know there's much more still to be added to the idea of library and there is also um, possibility to do exhibits you know to have talks to so it will become more uh, a little bit like theater like it's the ultimate cultural space exactly yeah. yeah and also connecting people that's what I find interesting. And I also think that that's the base of the library in the Netherlands, to connect people as well and inspire them. One thing that um, really stood out before, before and I'll, I'll let you go, was that you said that one book kind of means so much more when it's seen with other books. And I found that really interesting. So they're kind of like this, they become this organism altogether, which we, we call a library. Is that, has that been interest, an interesting process to see 
during this exhibition, how things connect together. They, they might be meaningless on their own. Yeah, I think the right word then is collection instead of library. Library is the place where it all comes together, but the collection uh, is what changes the context. You know, your books tell your context. Anton's boeken tell his story, his context, and that's what makes it interesting. And always up to date, always interesting. Yeah, because you look at books, you know, with the eye of today. So even between the day we first picked them up and today, we see things already a little bit different. And so in a year from now, it will be again different. But it's really that the books are like words together becoming a sentence. And um, they profit from each other because then you think, oh, yes, and this is happening in this book and this is recalled in this book, but then it brings it further and elsewhere so it's yeah it's an ongoing procession of uh, of ideas i think the anthology of graphic designer anton baker is on until the 15th of december at the archivio de stato in naples and that brings us to the end of this week's show this episode of monocle and culture was produced by holly fisher we'll be back at the same time next week but until then from me robert bounds thanks for tuning in 